Golay presents Recorded History with TheRecordHub.com 100% Irish and direct to your door. Well, hello you. Welcome to Recorded History with TheRecordHub.com I'm your host, Ed Smith, and this is the podcast where you get to hear about the lives and histories of your favourite musical heroes and theirs. Over the course of this series, I'll be chatting with some absolutely incredible musicians, writers, artists, authors, comedians and creatives about the three records that have come to define their lives. Again, it isn't one of those podcasts where we delve into the nitties and the gritties and we go, oh, I prefer the earlier stuff. Have you heard this rare Japanese import? No, no, that's not what this is about. This is about finding out about the people that you love through the music that they love. It's all pretty straightforward, very relaxed, very informal and hopefully very entertaining. So expect some unexpected choices, forgotten favorites from across the musical spectrum, from rock to house to pop to country. And for the first time on this series, this week, R.E.M. Be Still My Beating Heart. And to this week's episode and guest, what can we say about Mr. Paul Noon producing music since 1991 with the formation of Juniper from the Ashes, Rose, Bell X1, who have proven themselves over the last seven albums and countless collaborations with some of the best artists in the world as one of the most beloved and important Irish music bands of all time. I have gotten to know Paul a little bit through the scene here in my time in radio. Every time I've met him out socially, uh, I actually got him in to present a show I was producing many years ago. He mentions that in the podcast. He has always been nothing short of an absolute joyous gent. There's something very special about the presence of Mr. Paul Noonan. Incredibly talented, of course, that helps as well. And here in the podcast, in this week's episode of Recorded History, we find out about what kind of child he was, what kind of music that surrounded him when he was a child, what got him into music in the first place, his influences, the start of it all with Juniper, relationship with Damien Rice, and from that, Bell X1 emerged, why he collaborates so freely and so wonderfully with so many great artists, and the tragedy that hit his life in the year 2000, the effect that had on him. And of course, yes, his now, I suppose, career divergence into music therapy. He is absolutely fascinating about the turn he has taken in his life in that regard. And it's a big week for Bell X1, just coincidentally. I had booked Paul in when there was a major announcement for all Bell X1 fans, so we get into that as well. And of course, and above all, he has brought with him three incredible music choices. So here he is, Mr. Paul Noonan. Okay, this week's guest on Recorded History, as I've just mentioned in my lengthy and effusive intro, is, as I've just said, Mr. Paul Noonan. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, good form? Very well, yes. I picked a good week to get you in. I had no idea that there was going to be a big announcement. Ta-da! Bell X1 related. We're back, baby. Back, baby, yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll get into that in a little while, but how is all that going? Yeah, great. It's exciting. It's different times. We haven't put out anything new since 2016. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Good to be back on the road. And I saw you on the telly yesterday. We were, yeah. You're on the old hamster wheel, as you said. On the hamster wheel of promotion. Yeah, it sounded good. On that little metal thing. I haven't seen you in the flesh. I think I saw you. Do you run? I do. Yeah, I think I saw you running 
with typical elegance and yeah. grace. Just about, you saw. Uh, like you were so quick. Ball. You were a yeah. blur. <laughs> I said, that man, that is either Paul Noonan or The Flash. Sweaty mess. But you ran exactly how I would imagine Paul Noonan to run. Oh, wow. You kind of loped beautifully. <laughs> like an elegant oh, antelope. <laughs> And you were writing songs as you, you had a harp. <laughs> you got a whole thing going. Huh? I have a very distinct image of how you live your life. <laughs> I did see you running, but we met in Westport a couple of years ago. You were playing with the wonderful Maria Kelly. Yes. For Westfest. That's right. And that was before the pandemic. The big P. How was all that for you afterwards? The pando. Yeah. The uh, I, I think I had an okay time. I uh, pivoted to various things. I had I ran a, a family music show from my house. That was the Electric Kazoo, was it? Electric Kazoo, yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, which was great fun because I had just qualified as a music therapist. So I was finishing my last placement and when lockdown happened and I, as a sort of continuation of that placement, I tried to stay in touch with the kids from the school where I was working yeah. through, through through the internet on, a, on this Facebook live stream that we started. So... Yeah, it was a good time. And I we my, my, I dreamed up houseplants with dahi. Thank you. I have to say, we'll get into this as well yeah. in a little while, but houseplants, dry goods, for me, I'm not just saying this, album of the year, 2021. I Thank thought you. it was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very, very much. Very, very good. You must have enjoyed it. It sounds like you enjoyed every minute yeah. of it. Oh, we did. It was so easy. And Dahi is like the most capable person I think yeah. I've ever met. And it was all so self-contained. He did all the recording and I sent him my stuff by email. And it was just, it was a dream. And we got to play live a lot then the following year. That's so. right. And you've been busy, obviously. Yeah. So the Bellex One record is, I suppose it's been a, year, a few years in the making, but we finally gathered all what we had in the last few months and tried to make sense of it. And... How difficult was it for you, for your recorded history, to pick the three albums for today? It was difficult. Yeah. It was difficult. I kind of wanted to pick records that I had something to say about or that, that had certain kind of resonance with parts of specific times in my life and kind of my journey in music. So, yeah, that's what I did. They're not necessarily my favourite records. but That's not what it's about here. Yeah. yeah, it is exactly as you so beautifully described. It's not the greatest records of all time, yeah. but it's when you do listen to them, it brings you back mm. to a certain time. Let's get into it. Mr. Paul Noonan, it is your recorded history. Can you tell us what is your very first entry? My first entry is Green by R.E.M. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I know you're a big mm. guy. I was waiting for R.E.M. <laughs> to pop up in this series. First one. Yeah. And I'm delighted it's green. Yeah. 1988. Okay. Sixth album from them and their very first actually with Warner Music which is significant because they were I suppose R.E.M. purists will talk about the IRS years the first five albums last one was Document with with IRS and then they made the leap to Warners because they didn't feel IRS were rapping them strongly enough especially overseas so they signed to the big leagues and this I think some R.E.M. fans would consider this mm, they were accused at the time of selling out what music fans can be like. Mm-hmm. And you can hear it in the record compared to Document and the albums that went before. A bit more of a big stadium sound here. They're really swinging for the rafters a little bit more. Yeah. It doesn't take away from what I consider one of their finest albums. Yeah, I think it was the first record that I would have heard by them. And I did, then did go back and listen to Document and Life's Rich Pageant and the, the older stuff. But it was the reason I chose it, I think it was one of those. I often talk about that period. Well, I was 14 and there's a time where you fall in love with music, your own music, not necessarily things you've inherited, but you find your own tribe or you find... This is something that comes up a lot. Thing. In this yeah. yeah. And it's when you feel most 
on fire about music. It's all downhill from there. As I, I keep saying, this is again, this, I think every guest has said this, that when yeah. they're in around 14, 13, 14, 15, as I describe it, your pores are wide open. Yeah. Be it your music, your friends, the people you're attracted to, even your relationship with your friends and family, everything is 4D, hyper, real, and you feel everything to the nth degree. Wonderful. I often talk about like t- taking records to bed. Like I had a Walkman and I would <laughs> listen to records. R.E.M.'s Green was one of them, but mm, it was the one that really here. stands out. And I'm in bed and I have my headphones on and I'm listening to it and I'm living and breathing it all. And I, I hadn't listened to the record in a while. So when we spoke a little while ago, I went back and listened to it this week. And it, How did it, you find it's going back to it? Sportive. You know, it really is. There's things... Having had the sort of musical journey I've had since getting into music myself and making records, and you're going, that's a little tinny, isn't it? Oh, it's <laughs> like the sound of the hi hats and that sort. You know, so you, I often say, getting into making music, and you, you're kind of peering behind the curtain a little bit, which can dilute the magic of music in some ways. So it's, it's in in some ways, it's yeah. like you might like a sausage, but you really don't want to see how it's made. <laughs> um, so does a butcher eat so a sausage in a different way? Uh, that there's a purity about that time when you're yeah. falling in love with music and the music you fall in love, the music you listen to that, that, that you fall in love through, it really stays with you. Is there a sense, I get this sense with myself that I'm, I've been almost chasing the dragon since. <laughs> that intensity for the bands that I, again, REM, there would have been a bit of cure. I was coming up, just my plan is aligned with Nirvana, Pearl Jam. Yeah. And my first REM album was Out of Time, 91. So then I went back to Green and all the rest of them. But I get this sense that I, I've never had the kind of intense relationship I had. Maybe it's probably not a bad thing either. Yeah. Because you can get very consumed by it. Yeah, and it's a natural sort of progression, I think. Yeah. And we listen to music differently now. And where you grew up, your father was a school principal. Yeah. And there was a lot of classic 45s yeah. lying around the house. Yeah. Can you remember which ones stick out in your mind? Uh, Boney M's double A side. Ah, classic. Uh, classic dad record. Then. <laughs> yeah, double A side, Brown Girl in the Ring. Oh, yeah. And uh, what was the other one? It was the v- vaguely religious one. Mary's Boy Child Jesus Mary's Christ. Boy Child Jesus Christ Okay Born on Christmas Day Yeah So a lot of Boney M in the house Would you have uh, been allowed to put the records on? Oh yeah There was no yeah. kind of preciousness no. around Yeah. Beatles, Charlie Pride uh, Neil you know, not Neil, Neil, Neil Diamond The other guy The other Neil Neil Diamond Yeah Yeah. Again not it, My I didn't have older siblings But I had a friend whose older brother I would have he introduced me to Talking Heads and U2 oh, wow. and okay. Big Country and Simple Minds, who I loved as well. But I think R.E.M. was mine. It was that. And I think that was part of the attraction was that nobody, I don't know where, what led me to them, but they were very much, I, I I'd taken ownership of them. What are the standout tracks for you on it? I mean, it, there's the air side and there's the so-called metal side. Okay. Uh, side one is called the air side. And then side two kicks off then with Orange Crush. Orange Crush was the... There was, that was the biggest Orange, hit to date, that, I think, at that stage. Was Stand was one of the big songs on that. Stand's on there, yeah. Uh, was, Get Up. Yeah. yeah. It was a bit quieter things, like You Are the Everything. Uh, and Worldly to Pretend is an incredible song. Yes, it is. It's, it's a classic piece of... Like, there's, where it breaks to just the piano and the vocal mm. for that third verse as well. It's, it, it really stands up as a sort of song you could deliver on the piano or the guitar. My, my favourite was the I watch the children come and go The late long march in the spring God. 
I will try to sing a happy song. And I'm in bed with the wow. headphones. Yes, I will try to yeah. sing a happy song. Oh my God, that, what a moment that was. <laughs> I think it, it's a slightly political record, this as well. I think they timed the release for the US elections 88. It was Bush versus Dukakis. Okay. So you've got World Leader Pretend on there. Yeah. Just going back to Stipe and his, his approach to songwriting. And it was only when I heard Green today, I listened to it again today, thanks again, and I heard it almost through your ears and knowing your history and listening to your music for so long. A lot of the lyrical notes that he strikes or the approaches, is were you influenced by him at all in your own songwriting? I hear a lot of the yeah. kind of Bedex One stuff in this early incarnation it's of our... Sort of kind of flights of fancy yeah. and taking... He's not a particularly literal writer. It's... For the most part. I mean, there are some that are quite obvious, but I liked his sort of, he paints pictures, like he's quite visual, I think. Mm. And as he as, as, as he has said himself, he could sing the phone book and it would sound great. He has that sort of... I think there's a sense, he's very much a stream of consciousness writer. Yeah. I think he just writes, and whatever's in him, whatever's influencing him subconsciously. Yeah. And I think people tend to look at Stipe as a bit of a word salad merchant that there's okay. kind of jibbery jibbery. But there's, uh, once you get past that, there is a lot of rhyme... Reason to his rhyme. Yeah. I think he's a, such I mean, a unique voice. In some ways, say, with Stand, I remember the video, had there was a particular dance That's right. Stand yeah, yeah. That, that we would do in the, at the local teenage disco, mm. like the underage disco. Where you, it's a little bit like Saturday night where you had to jump. To, uh, yeah, jump with your arms quite stiff down by your sides. At some point. Oh, yeah. So there was a, there is a, there is a physicality to, to Stipe that kind of had that David Byrne also has. And I was very much attracted to those that even as a child to that sort of physical-ness. Uh, yeah. that, I think he, like, he's, he's a very instinctive performer as well. He just lets everything... Yeah. If you even look at the videos for Stand or even for Losing My Religion, you know, he's yeah. a very compelling figure to look at yeah. as yeah. well as here. And wonderfully compelling live. Yeah, I've had the great benefit and glory yeah. of seeing them. I saw them in the Olympia for that. Oh, wow. Oh, for those rehearsals? Yeah. Okay. To this day, yeah, I'm not sure I'll ever get over it. Yeah. And he had the lyrics out in front of him because he was... Yeah, some of these I haven't sung for so long, and it was it, it actually added to the, I suppose the intimacy of it. Yeah. He was just so real and raw and honest, wonderful. I'd love to see them get back together. I don't well, know if they'll ever. It ha- won't. Do you not think so? Uh, no, and I think it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I love that that they just stopped. So just go back to your own musical genesis, as it were. You're a flautist. <laughs> yeah. Do you still play? Second flautist. Second flautist, no less. I do actually. You do. I bought a flute about six months ago. Oh. Because I'd sold my flute at the age of 15 or 16 to buy a drum kit. <laughs> what happened uh, at, at the age of 15? You're just like, no, I'm I mean, done with I this. I want to rock and roll. Well, you know, I was in a concert band, the Lucan Concert Band. Okay. Second flautist. And they brought a drummer in one day and I was so excited. I distinctly remember we used to rehearse in this like big boomy gym and they brought the drums in and the, when the drums started playing, I couldn't physically play. I was so taken with the sound of the drums and so I used to hang around after rehearsal and go give us a shot give us a yeah. I eventually became a percussionist in the concert band and I gave up the flute so I played like Tim. did you sell the flute and buy a set of I drum did, yeah. you did that is true yeah. Yeah. what was your reaction at home to that I can't yeah, there was, was that good? I, I mean I did I didn't do it without permission but okay. there was definitely some what are you doing? You're going to put a drum kit in the shed, really? And you're going to make a load of noise, which, again, my parents were very tolerant and understanding of that. And I suppose at that age, that physical release as well is 
yeah, important as well. I remember playing to Led Zeppelin's The Song Remains the Same. Oh, you, yeah, you went yeah. small then to begin. I did. I'm going to take on John Bonham. And yeah, just the headphones on and like lashing away. It's amazing. It must be. I've started, I started during the lockdown to try to learn the ukulele. I was that guy. Okay. I think I learned Dirty Old Town. It took me about eight months. <laughs> so I've nothing, but I suppose a certain amount of jealousy, envy, and a little bit of resentment for people like yourself that can just pick up an instrument and uh, take it, have a go at it. We're going to move on now to your second entry, yeah. Mr. Paul Noonan, for your recorded history. The year is 1996. What is it? It's uh, DJ Shadows introducing. Gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, Why is it here? It is here, I suppose, uh, because I've always been fans of both country and Western music. So, like, electronic music and sample-based stuff I I really like. And it was it was a crystallized... This record, it really... He shows you how it's done in terms of making music that's sample-based. And there's a lot of lore around this record that it was just a... Uh, two turntables and an MPC sampler that okay. he, made every, he made the whole record with but how true that is I don't know it wouldn't have been too far from that surely I mean, still in the mid 90s I mean I think it was possibly still a bit of a wild west in terms of sample clearance because so Paul's Boutique had come out the Beasties okay. I think quite recently before that yeah. and I but think uh, you're right wasn't it there was a as, lot of as a dr- I think fundamentally as a drummer the grooves on this record are so satisfying and I'd imagine he's quite the boffin with finding loops and stuff from old records to 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 sample and then chop up uh, yeah you know that that track uh, uh, building steam from a grain of salt is just wonderfully satisfying drum groove and just the again it's atmosphere and it's his use of tv show samples and it's also quite beautiful as well as being quite thunderingly satisfying from a groove point of view it's quite a a beautiful record as well. It is. It's so hard to pin down. It's not a hip-hop record, despite its, I suppose, its heavy, how we say this kind of legally, influence from so many other hip-hop records. It's almost a trance record. It's a dance record. It's spoken word. It's an art piece. It's And the Avalanches obviously took this with their own record in 2001, Since I Left You, which I spoke to Seamus O'Reilly about, but without DJ Shadow, there's no Avalanche. And I think what I love when I listen to this, you can almost see him crate diving Amoeba Records in San Francisco and just having his ears open in a different way to sounds like it could be an obscure TV commercial or a theme song to an old TV and he goes "Mm, what's that grabs it puts it in Yeah, it's like a mad chef just concocting this and it was at a time I think wasn't it around 96, 97, 98 you've massive attack that trip hop scene Portishead's record Dummy had come out a year or two before that Max and Kay from, from Tricky, then you've Massive Attack, all that Bristol scene, and then coming from the States, it was DJ Shadow. Things were very cool for a long time yeah. there. And it's a record we reference a lot still now in terms of drum sound and drum groove. And we made our first record in 99. And yeah. we've, there's a song on it called Offshore, which is very much influenced by, again, that building building steam song from introducing just in terms of playing a, gro- a drum groove and then grabbing, chopping up, chopping it up and sort of like... I suppose as a drummer yourself, that's... Yeah. Uh, and you were a drummer, of course. We're going to just go back to Juniper, just briefly. From the ashes of that, we got Bell X1. Yeah. So the transition from holding the sticks to getting behind the microphone, was that something that you were itching to do anyway? Or did the circumstances of that formation of Bell X1, how come it was you and how did that come about? 
It is something I've I had wanted to do. I think uh, in Juniper, we the three of us had written songs, and I sang the songs that I had written from the kit, and I, it wasn't a sort of I don't know. It felt like a sort of natural progression to singing when when Dam- so Damien Rice was in Juniper, and then he when he left, we kind of yeah. scrambled and, and said, okay, we we need to forge a sort of very separate identity quickly. So Bellex One was born and we made a record pretty quickly having sort of I suppose because we'd there'd been so much procrastination with Juniper we never actually made a full album but you'd been signed for a six album deal yeah and then before you released your first album things changed yeah as we know and now you're at the forefront so when you all gathered it must be quite a tumultuous frantic time I suppose it was how do you look back at it now in the 20s and yeah it was pretty fraught for sure I think Damien had just been unhappy for a, a, yeah. a while and you know actually we were talking about it yesterday with Dave and I and it actually took balls to say I can't do this because he would have been conscious of people depending on him and, and this opportunity as well of you know we've got on a major record deal and he walked away from it all yeah uh, but for the rest of you then it was just either I suppose this has happened let's regroup yeah literally was that an opportunity now to fine-tune your sound in a different way? or Yeah, we did try. I'm not sure how different it is. I think that first record, that first Bellex One record, is markedly different from the couple of Juniper songs that we had put out at that point. But I think we wanted to have a substantial body of work. We wanted to sort of be taken seriously, and we need, we felt we needed to do that. Because I think there would have been a bit of a feeling, oh, Damien's gone, oh, the band are gone. You know, there's no, yeah. there's no band without Damien, and I, I think we were determined to prove people wrong on that. I think you did. I think that's f- fair to say. Uh, like, go back to DJ Shadow. I would have only heard of DJ Shadow through Dolanine's No Disco, which yeah. was such a seminal show for so many of us. What night was it on? I'm trying to remember. Was it Thursday? Was it Thursday? I think it was Thursday. It was Thursday, wasn't it? Yeah. So when Dolan would come on, first of all, we never see anything like Dolanine, and he's actually from quite close to me, where I grew up in Mill Street. He's from Ratmore. He's on the Kerry side of the border, which is he's wont to remind me every time we meet. But access to music then, so you released the first album, Neither Am I, that was 2000? 2000, yeah. Yeah. How do you, you know, to get your stuff played on the radio, Don Danilo obviously was one out of Fanning, would have been around that time. How DIY was it back then for a band of your freshness, your newness, your naivety? How did you go about the business then? We played every gig that we could. I think we played a lot. We were on Universal Records, so... That helps. You know, that, that, that does bring some wallop. And they, they did a good job in terms of raising our profile. And I think that first record was still... Like, there were no big hits as such on the record. And we, we built what we built by playing... Mainly by playing live as much as we could. And... It wasn't until the second record where I think things got tra- traction on radio. Yeah. And but how would you describe this? In the late 90s in Dublin, in Ireland, I suppose, you know, the, yeah, frames were coming through as well a bit. Yeah. Bell X1. It, and I was, when I first came to Dublin, it was in around then, 96. <clears throat> and I just remember, maybe through rose-tinted glasses, but there, there was a real sense that there was something happening. Yeah, uh, in Dublin specifically, and in Cork, I have to say that. But there was a lovely scene and a little sense of camaraderie. Yeah, between all the bands. How do you remember looking back on the on the Irish Fondly music scene? For sure, there? and I think there, there was that sort of DIY. Even though we were on a major label, 
it was we we weren't being sent stratospheric and there wasn't a huge amount of money flying around but everyone was really i think one thing i remember everyone was very keen to share recording equipment oh. and gear and makings and know-how and i think that's been i think i see so younger musicians now they very much have a sense of that being in a very important part of the skill set to be able to record because it's a lot easier now and back then was a sort of I suppose the start of the digital age in terms of recording, you had didn't quite have, you couldn't do it on your laptop as such, but there were sort of small digital units you could buy and make records with and people were doing it in kitchens and hiring a house down the country and the way and making records and borrowing b- bits of gear from everyone else. So that that was lovely and obviously it, it revolved around Whelan's. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. Bar and venue and it, it, people guesting on each other's records and supporting each other. And stuff. Is there any part of you that misses those days that you just ramble so, in, yes, there's so-and-so I mean, at the bar and there's Paul from, there's Glenn and there's... Yeah. The, I mean, it'd be a bit tragic if I was still doing that one. I know, <laughs> I know, but, yeah. And I'm sure folks do, and uh, but and good luck to them. Good luck uh, to them, right. Because <laughs> yeah. there's only a certain amount of bandwidth that everyone is trying to get in terms of profile and so is there bitchiness is there underhandedness about it but there genuinely isn't I think I don't think so it's too small a a town and business because word will get out very quickly speaking of collaborating back in the early days you know the longevity you've shown in the business it's quite rare really I think to be going for as long as you have as a band but I want to ask you about how open and willing and I suppose, for want of a better word, hungry you are for collaboration throughout your musical career between, I don't know, printer clips, the cake sale, then you've got house plants. There's countless other. There isn't, I rarely think there's a musician in Ireland left that you haven't teamed up with. I think it's such a wonderful part of your approach to music that whilst Bellex One is obviously a massive part yeah. of who you are and how people know you, that you're curious to seek other people out yeah. that you think maybe with my sound and their sound I could learn something or maybe we could create something unique was that always something that was been with you from the early days I think so um, I mean I would have been a lot shyer about it in the past maybe or a little less sure of myself maybe but it's something I think we were talking earlier about the concert band I don't know if being in something in an ensemble like that mm. had some influence but I remember the printer clips project was the first one that that, that was a kind of a substantial collaborative project and it was a record of duets that I made with women from here and across the water in various directions. And the trigger for it really was seeing Gillian Welch play right. Gillian Welch and yeah. David Rawlings and, mm. and seeing how beautiful that is as a just two people with two guitars she is and something two else. voices. Wow. So I, kinda, I knew some people and then I, I cold called others and flew over to Montreal and recorded with Amy Milan from Stars. And my, you toured with Stars. Wainwright. We did, yeah. yeah. We toured with them for a stint in the US, yeah. which was great. And speaking of the US, the David Letterman performance, I was only watching it the other day on YouTube. But that must have been an amazing experience. Yeah, we did that Quite twice. Surreal. Yeah. Twice. Surreal in that the Ed Sullivan Theatre is tiny. Is it? It is. Oh, wow. It's, and freezing. And were you there all day then? Old, How does it work? No, it's, it's a well-oiled machine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were there for quite a while, but it's um, and Letterman comes out after, and he has this thing he, 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 that he used to do where after the performance he'd wander onto the stage and start making conversation and ask about the drum kit and stuff like he had that sort of alive thing. on yeah, the television. Yeah, he, okay. would, he has that lo- had that lovely um, casualness. The US has been we're hoping to get back next year with this new record. I, part of me thinks that we didn't make as much of 
those telly performances as we should have maybe or done something more special or done something differently. To stand out or get a bit yeah, more notice. Yeah, to stand out and go viral, man. Famously, Elvis Costello was barred from Saturday Night Live because he changed the song he was going to perform okay. mid-song. Okay. He stopped and went, all right, guys, I don't want to do this. Let's do this one. Okay. I think Lauren Michaels had specifically asked and the record company had, let's try the pop, more poppy one because we want to get okay. radio sales and he was like, no, this is nonsense. <laughs> he said, fuck this. Okay. And he turned around to the band and went, no, let's do this one. Yeah. And it caused, you can imagine, yeah. absolute carnage. Okay. And he's been barred ever since. I don't know how true that is. No, I don't know. Just I was stripped just naked. Iconic and performances from those shows, yeah. like Sabotage. I don't know if you Of course, yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, there's the yeah, there's various ones that really stand out, but I'm not sure ours does. <laughs> and well, I would recommend anyone to watch it. It's such a great song. Rocky took a lover, really. Now we're gonna move on. We've gone from nineteen ninety-six. Isn't it? Yes. And we're rolling on to a little bit more recent times. The year is, what a record this is, Paul Noonan, your third choice for your recorded history. It's from the year 2000. Yep. What is it? It's B.J. Harvey's Stories from the yes. City, Stories from the Sea. My goodness. Why is this here? I'd been a long time fan of hers at that point, And I suppose it crystallised my love for her writing and it had it, it's probably you know listening to it again this week it's quite a relatively not middle of the road but it's quite it's a grown up record in terms of their their songs mm. with first chorus middle eight chorus it's eight. her fifth it's, it's, quite, it's, it's her fifth record I think isn't it yeah and yeah it's a, just a wonderfully played and beautifully sung record her vocals on that record on this record are beautiful but also I think it had particular resonance. For me, in that at that time, I the year two thousand was quite quite a, a year. In that, my girlfriend at the time passed away uh, quite Only. suddenly. Yes, mm. yeah, and it for some reason I, I associate that record because it's a it's a love record. It's it, she's obviously Polly is in love in New York and uh, in the throes of new love and is sort of unashamedly celebrating that. And you know she's she's. Obviously, you know, she's a very cool artist and has often been quite dark and it's quite, you know, some of her music could be quite sort of lean into the sort of more industrial side of things. But this is a this is a really unabashed celebratory record. So it's a really interesting part of her discography, this one, because this is her fifth studio album. She'd previously to this, it was To Bring You My Love from 95, then In This Desire, 1998, two very intense and I think very emotionally taxing and draining albums on her. She had just come out of that relationship with Nick Cave. She wrote the album on the back of that, you can imagine. Yeah. So I think she decided quite obviously and quite honestly to go, I want something a little bit more upbeat. I want to write some good pop songs. Mm. You know, as as much as PJ Harvey can lighten the load a little bit. Like it starts with Big Exit. She gets Tom York on some of the backing vocals here, and he sings obviously the, this mess we're in. But there is still that very distinct PJ Harvey DNA running through this. It's very intense, you know. But there is that lightness of touch as well. Yeah. That there's some great pop I mean, songs. Good, on good it. fortune is wonderful. It's just unbelievable. Uh, up and celebratory, and she talks a lot about on a rooftop in Manhattan, and there's images around like. Manhattan can be such a beautifully sort of romantic place. I would imagine when you're in that, in, in, when you're in that, in the throes of what she's, what she's in at, at that period. That's the whore's hustle and the hustle's whore. No, that's another. That, that's I mean, a that, great that's old school, like dingy, proper New York, wonderfully record, isn't it? Yeah, dirty tune. But I'd seen her on that, you know, after, yeah, it was Unin Fitzsimons who, who sadly passed away in that year, and 
I went out to Australia shortly afterwards because she had just been in Australia. And That's I, right, yeah. I went out to see her friend that she'd been visiting and we went, we saw PJ Harvey do a radio thing on the on a rooftop in, in Melbourne and uh, I've had a couple of vaguely sort of PJ Harvey, it, it, I won't say I've never, I have actually met her. but She's I, tiny, I met her she once. She's tiny, She's yeah, so but small. I remember after that show we were, I was visiting, also visiting my friend Nick Seymour from Crowded House. Oh yeah. There. He was out there at the time and uh, so we were, we said hi afterwards and then I just clammed up I think but then subsequently I met her I played drums with Gemma Hayes for a while and we opened for Sparkle Horse on a European tour and Polly would have known Mark from Sparkle Horse Uh, I think they worked together Polly came to the London show in Union Chapel and at the after show I was just dying to to say something to her Mm. and so I took a plate of biscuits and went up and offered her a biscuit (laughs) and she took one of those pink wafers of course it was the pink wafer (laughs) is there anything black here a dark digestive but that record Stories from the City Stories from the Sea won the Mercury Prize and she was in Washington that night it was 9-11 when she won it? She, when she won it. So she was on the phone from Washington saying, the Pentagon I can see from my window here is still smoking. For her acceptance speech? Yes. You are joking me. Yeah. Very surreal. They went ahead. Of course they would they have done did, it. did, yeah. She's won it twice, the Mercury, yeah, I think. she has. One of the only artists, I think, too. Yeah. It's an amazing record, really. As you say, like, it's very textured, very... Again, if you're a Polly Jean Harvey fan, I don't think she's turned her back on what made her who she was, but she's definitely, I think, in the mood and in a place to go, oh, I'm tired of this gothic sadness (laughs) that I seem to carry around and exude. I can't even imagine what herself and Nick Cave would have been like. (laughs) I always like to think in my head a sketch of Come Down With Me and it's it's Nick Cave and PJ Harvey are are hosting and it's it's all these goblets of wine and (laughs) these kind of gnarled thrones. But then, and a pink know, biscuit. Sure, who put the bin? Who puts the bins? Out? Yeah, you I know. just love the thought of it. <laughs> getting into does Nick? Because he wears a suit all the time. All the time. Who does the dr- who does all that? <laughs> what have I told you about your collars? <laughs> but of course, like he wrote the Boat- Boatman's Call. Uh, yeah, relationship as well, which is beautiful. And she's just announced a new album. Yeah, yeah it's going to be called "I Inside the Old Year Dying." Okay, it's a very Polly Jean Harvey or PJ Harvey sounding record. Standout tracks from. This one, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, which were the ones that you would uh, go back to? When do you listen to this? Uh, when? Yeah, when, when's the best time to listen to this for anyone listening that oh. hasn't heard it? It's a good morning record. It is. It's not one of those records that you take to bed, I think. It's quite a sort of big, widescreen, positive, for the most part, kind of record. I mean, there's This Is Love. Uh, oh, This which Is Love, yeah. Again, that sort of unashamed celebration of of love and being in the throes of... She was in New York filming a movie with a guy, Hal Hartley, I think it was. She was there for a couple of months, fell in love with the place and went back then and just lived there and hung out. And she was obviously seeing somebody at the time. Yeah. So all of that kind of, her love for the energy of New York. But some of the songs were written in Dorset. I think that's why it's called Stories from the City and the Sea. Okay. Stories from the Sea because yeah. she lives in Dorset as a house there. So some of it is, it's not a complete New York record. Yeah. That's your three records. We'll jump out of the past and into the present and future, Paul. You alluded to it earlier and I've been doing a lot of reading this. I have some experience of music therapy. My wonderful sister-in-law, Dervla Hines, is trained and qualified. Uh, she's not able to do it just yet at the moment, due to her own battles, but she will be back at it. And I've often sat down with her and asked her to try and explain 
what it is. And the only way she can really truly get through to me is she'll show me a video of some of her students. This is when I first started. And these are kids with quite severe needs. And then a month or two later, even maybe three or four months later, she'll go, look, do you remember that young boy I showed you? I said, oh yeah, how is he? And he goes, look at him now. And there'll be a smile on his face. He's interacting, he's clapping or he's playing the tambourine and you can see the joy that's in him and how much he's come out of himself in those, well, three or four months. I know it takes its time. But this is a world that when I met you in Westport a couple of years ago, you were still studying it and then you qualified, as you mentioned, during the lockdown. Yeah. What was it that brought you to the world of music therapy? Uh, is that even a stupid question? No, it was quite a specific thing. I read parts of a book by the neurologist Oliver Sacks. It's a book called Musicophilia, where he talks about case to, cases that he's encountered and that, where music had, had played a, a big part and investigating the idea of the neural pathways that music uses are quite specific to music and can often remain intact after a brain injury or dementia has taken hold. or So I just found that fascinating. And also around the idea of like what music does, why does it work? And why does why do certain chords, chord progressions elicit certain feelings? And can that be explained the saddest neurologically? Note, the saddest chord Which of all? It, thankfully it can't. Yeah. The saddest chord according to Spinal Tap yeah. is the saddest key is D minor. D minor, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's such a fascinating world. And you, you alluded to, you know, you've had tragedy in your own life, losing Uni at such a young age. I remember that time very well, actually. I'd never met her, but the impact of her loss rippled through the Irish music scene. Mm. And to this day, I know people who would speak about her so fondly 20 odd years uh, after that. Was music for you at that time? You know, you mentioned you went to Australia, you went to gigs and all the rest of it. Yeah. Now that you've gotten an insight through your music therapy, how do you look back on how Absolutely, yeah. the healing that you went through? A bam. And we, the Bell X1 record, Music and Mouth, is very much about that, which I've only really lately started to think was that was quite a burden to put on the lads from the band. Yeah. It was me going through this and channeling it through song. And then, I mean, we did talk about it for sure, and but I'm not sure I was sufficiently sort of uh, aware of what I'd been asked, what I was asking them to do. You were grieving, Paul, as well. You yeah. Know. But yeah, absolutely. Music music was a huge help. Both listening to th- things like Radiohead was a big love of hers and mine. And we would have shared a lot th- through that. And certain songs definitely would still bring me to this day. To places Is there any albums sure, or yeah. maybe songs you yeah. still yeah, find difficult? I mean, as a record and yeah. Plastic Trees. And that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredibly sad song yeah. anyway. Mm. They seem to, uh, they were at that sort of peak. They, they haven't gone there. So I think they've they've kind of evolved, pushed those buttons more subtly, subtly since. Yeah, it's, it was a Radiohead track for me. My father passed away previously, a couple of years previous, but I was in Brazil anyway. I was on, in Brazil on holidays. And I had my headphones on, scorching day, and I could see the steam rising off my blubbery pink body and my girlfriend had run into the sea and I said you know what I'm just going to stay under the shade put my headphones on I was listening to OK Computer and I hadn't thought about it that much or you know it was a devastating time but I'd got on with things and no surprises came on and there's an image in it it's regarding a little house and such a pretty house such a pretty garden and he had a beautiful little cottage Okay. and I'd only noticed when she came back and she'd seen my face was drenched wow with tears and that song to this day like I, I struggle to listen to it now because it now t- has tattooed memories of my father in it because yeah. I heard the song in that particular moment but it did it helped yeah. but it made me confront something that maybe obviously I had 
stored away or yeah. kept away or locked away. And that song, to quote Michael Caine, blew the bloody doors off. <laughs> and I had to confront it. And I yeah. wept and I wept and I wept. My point being, I suppose, that the music is... I've spoken to Brezzi about this. I've spoken to previous guests yeah. as to the therapy that is music. Yeah. But now that you've almost formalized that, you've learned the science behind it. Yeah. But you've got some incredible work placements during your studies. Yeah, I did. During the training, I worked with children with autism. I worked with adults with dementia, adults with acquired brain injury, adults with, with disability. Yeah, I mean, I had this idea of like, it would, wouldn't be amazing to distill what we feel as music lovers and music makers and the power of music and how it connects on a more el elemental level yeah. than any other communication or art form I feel but can we bottle this and deploy it clinically even I find with the children that I so I work with a lot of children in the inner city here in Dublin who would have experienced some adverse childhood stuff yeah parents in jail drug use violence at the home and often there isn't a whole lot of sort of positive interaction with an adult especially male adult so fostering those relationships through music, yes, but music is secondary almost. Mm. But it's the gate; it's the tool. It's the gateway. It fosters you, you know, listening to highly inappropriate hip hop, or <laughs> you know, uh, like playing a djembe and making up silly songs about someone's dog. It's no, it's no know. coincidence, Paul, that you know, a sweeping generalization here. So, whether I keep this in or not, it'll depend how this sentence goes. But <laughs> in some of the most deprived areas around the world from American cities in New York, Chicago. From there we got obviously hip-hop and dance music and the favelas in Brazil to Liverpool, you know, Manchester, London. You know, that music is always, I think, for children who... It's either that or in some cases football. Yeah. It was an out. It was an outlet. It was a way to express their frustrations yeah. and I suppose have a bit of control in their lives because they had so little control over yeah. everything else. But you can pick up a guitar... Yeah, you can learn the chords to the Chuck Berry song, or yeah, and you can channel maybe some channel some frustration or uh, or angst. I had a day of it today where, for twenty minutes, one child was just lashing the drums, yeah. and often that energy can be can manifest in the classroom in less helpful ways. So I'm told sometimes kids can go back from sessions and be spent in that sense, yeah, to not have. Whatever was... They've channeled it, isn't it, into something. In Speaking of classrooms, what is the status from a HSC Department of Education level of music therapy? I know that the NHS have formalised their relationship, but they've, they're big on it over there. And yeah. They've encompassed it, enclosed it into their system. But it's we're a bit behind, I believe, in that. We are, and we're the only European country that it's not a sort of as inside the tent in that sense, as a sort of recognised profession within the health service. There's a lot of momentum behind getting that sort of what's called statutory recognition. Right. At the moment, anyone can call themselves a music therapist, cowboy's Ted. <laughs> so... You know, Any fella can rock up with a tambourine. needs to be a sort of protected... Of thing. course, because it is proven. I mean, it's there's a physical, yeah. physiological effect... You know, you yeah. have dealt with a lot of people with um, dementia and Alzheimer's, mm. I know. And you've also, I know, this is the one that struck me in the Harold's Cross Hospice. Mm. It, it goes really from children at the beginning of their lives and then you are there to give people at the end of their journey. Yeah. A way through music to 
is it to provide comfort or to provide expression or to and again that was a placement during my training mm. there, there's a unit there that's effectively a nursing home so I ran a group where people shared songs and stories about songs and we'd sing a song for a certain person and they would talk about what that song means for them mm. but then I'd also see I had some people who were close to the end of their lives and would co-write a song about their home place and about what they could see at their childhood window man you know so that's a lot of that relatives take enormous comfort from that sort of work. So it's it goes beyond the person themselves, which is really nice. But yeah, as you say, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of studies that sort of you know academic studies, tr- uh, clinical trials that do prove the eff- efficacy of music therapy. But uh, again, music is such an elusive thing to to describe. And but the benefits are real that <clears throat> you can see them. Yeah. even in your short terms as a practitioner. Yeah, the results are very real for you that you can see the I can. With sometimes I mean, working with children you can kind of like after a session I'm like well, we were just goofing there for yeah. 20 minutes and now I can dress it up in clinical language that's but. 80% of bands <laughs> let's be honest with your own children at home have you woven musical therapy into their play or do you no. get them uh, to use music to express themselves or they do that anyway they yeah. my, my daughter who's 11 is mad is a mad Tay-Tay fan so she will oh, right. bellow Tay-Tay okay. all day <laughs> so, you must know the words of this stage, do you? Yeah, it's great. She's good. Really She's great. really good. And my son, who, who was like, it's funny his journey. So he's thirteen, and he for, he loved ACDC because of the way the singing was shouted. <laughs> but it's, there's I went through ACDC to music <laughs> through our kids' ears in that way is very interesting. Yeah, because you could see the appeal of ACDC. It's mu- it's very musical, but he's shouting. Yeah. It's, it's the best of all worlds, isn't it, yeah. for a 13-year-old boy? Yeah. To go to the future times, we have the announcement that came out this week. Rather handily for me and my purposes here on the podcast. Eighth studio album from Bellix One. I love the name of it. Merciful Hour. Yeah. Coming out on May 26th, and we have a single from it, Haint Blue. Yeah. What can you tell us about the record and the single? Yeah, it's... we. It, takes a while to feel like you've got something to say again sometimes which is why it's been seven years oh it's seven years yeah which is um, rare for you because I was looking it's every two or three normally yeah between albums and I think after the last one we definitely made a conscious decision to take a break for a while I think we'd we wanted we all I had become interested in music therapy and we, I suppose we'd, we just we felt like we would we would be back but we would take some time to dream it up again. So some of these songs, it's there are 10 songs on the record. Some of them have been kicking around for years. Some of them were born during the process. And because we have the makings, like Dave has a really great little studio at home and I've got a studio here in town. And so we've been recording and had a lot of stuff to throw into the pot. But we really wanted somebody to take the helm and be the... You got one of the best. Custodian. I'm telling you right now. Custodians of the session is what we call them. He is so something else. We, we we spoke to John Spud Murphy. He's an incredible producer. About, about doing that. And he came on board and held our hands and recorded some. I think it's about time. John's time is now. He's been around for the Lancome record, I think. Yeah. Put the spotlight on John and how talented he is. His yeah. relationship with the, the musicians, his understanding. He used to work in this building yeah, many years ago. A nicer man. You could never wish to meet, but I'm just so happy for him that he's had his time now and you couldn't have chosen a better producer. I cannot wait to hear it. You've got some dates coming up June 10th, live in the Marquee in Cork Bay. Then you're in King John's Castle, Limerick on the 17th, 8th of July. You're in the Stendhal Festival in Derry. Oh, the Ivy Gardens, beautiful. Yeah. 
21st of July. It's one of my favourite venues in the world, actually. You're at the Forest Festival. Great lineup for that Forest Festival. There is, yeah. Ash are playing. Is it Suede as well? Suede, yeah. My God. 22nd of July, then you're back to Galway, the International Arts Festival. 28th of July, and you're down then at the Revival Festival in Lishtol on the 12th of August. You're busy. How do you prepare for all that's well, about to happen over the next six or seven months? We've had high-level meetings at this point where we try to figure out how to do these songs. We haven't rehearsed yet, but we're getting into that in a couple of weeks, I think. And the shows of the Dowry Strings, some of these songs got an outing. Yeah. They did. So we started playing shows with Dowry Strings, a wonderful string quartet helmed by the lovely Aina Brennan. Yeah. And we, the last few years, have been doing shows, just the three of us with Dowry Strings and sort of retrofitting, for the most part, retrofitting strings into the catalogue. So we thought, what if we do it the other way around? We'll start with strings. So this is quite a string-heavy record, and it, it was wonderful to do it that way around. Yeah. Great, best of luck with that. Thank you. Paul Noonan, thank you so much for taking the time. You are a busy man, but uh, you're one of my favourite people from the scene that I've met. You're the nicest, kindest man and a genuine music saint and a music scholar now. And I cannot wait to hear the new record and best of luck with the music therapy side of things. Best of luck with the new album. The new single is out. It's beautiful. Thank you, above all, I suppose, for sharing your recorded history. We had Green from 1988, DJ Shadow introducing, and then, of course, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea, from the great PJ Harvey. Paul Noonan, thank you. So there it is, the life, the times, and the recorded history of Mr. Paul Noonan. I have to be honest, when Paul Noonan sang at me during the recording of that podcast, I blushed up like a turnip. I was an absolute puddle, barely held it together for the following few minutes, let me tell you. He just exudes this inner peace, calm, and complete decency, which, let me tell you, is at a premium in the business that he is in. It's no surprise, of course, that he's using his powers for such good challenging them into music therapy and on top of all that he and the Bellix one lads are back their eighth album it is going to be called merciful hour out on may 26th and they're doing all those dates that i mentioned there too paul noonan a beautiful soul okay i'm gonna stop crushing now now if you haven't heard or want to go back or indeed revisit one of the records that paul mentioned may i demand you listen to green asap or just one you actually just want to listen or buy for yourself, then we'd love if you supported our partners at therecordhub.com. We simply couldn't make this podcast without their generous loveliness. And might I mention, you should follow them on TikTok as well. They post up some absolutely classic music clips. Again, let me just say, I do hope you enjoyed our crate dive together and that you'll join me again next week and every Sunday after that for more of the same. Next week's guest has in recent years emerged as one of our most beloved and iconic actors, TV presenters and Twitter heroes. And above and beyond all that, she is possessed of the greatest blessing and gift of them all. She's from Cork. Yes, I'm talking about Sister Michael herself, the wonderful Siobhan McSweeney joins me and you to share her story and her recorded history. I've been Ed Smith. This has been Recorded History. Now all you have to do is tell your friends, hit follow and become a weekly listener. Thank you all so much. You're all gorgeous. Talk to you all next week. Go Loud presents Recorded History. Hosted, produced and researched by me, Ed Smith, at Go Loud Studios. The show was created and executive produced for Go Loud by D-Ready. Our series is proudly supported by TheRecordHub.com, your local Irish and online record store.